I invite you to open your Bible, if you have a Bible along with you today, to Proverbs chapter 3. Otherwise, you could Google it up, Proverbs chapter 3. We'll try to ingest the whole chapter. It's got a lot of famous stuff in it, so it won't be unfamiliar to you. Most notably, Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But I'm, I'm most eager to share with you the chapter in its entirety because I think it will provide some benefit that's been unrealized in most approaches to the Proverbs. Because after all, the Proverbs are, are nuggets, right? They're little, little sayings. It's better to live on the corner of a roof than with a, a contentious wife. That's a famous proverb. Uh, and it's usually dealt with in isolation. We understand its truth. Maybe we smirk at it. Uh, or maybe it's a, a proverb about the value of hard work. Look to the ant, O oh sluggard. It's, it's those famous ones that we mostly see in isolation. But that's not how the book is laid out. What we've seen in the first three chapters, and if you're new with us today, I met a few visitors, welcome. Uh, you're jumping in at a great point because you haven't missed a single proverb. The book of Proverbs has nine chapters of preparation, nine chapters to whet your appetite, nine chapters of a description of something called wisdom and how it relates to you and life in a fallen world and God. And it's most concerned for nine chapters to ready you to receive those proverbial truths that the book is so well known for that don't drop until chapter 10. And so chapter 3 is a great place to jump in. What we've seen so far is chapter 1 uh, talked about the, really the agenda of the author, of Solomon the king, the, the wise man who composed this book with the audience of ancient Israel in mind. And as he gathers them to teach them, the thesis of the book is chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And it's there we start to encounter this preparatory work that we're here to learn wisdom. A book originally composed for young people to try to help them set their life on the right trajectory. A book composed to inform a nation's morality as they were to live in a distinct way because they knew Yahweh and their covenant God was theirs and they were supposed to represent and reflect Him. Uh, it was a book that was intended to help people navigate life in a fallen and sinful world full of dangers and criminals and bad decisions. And this book is committed to giving you wisdom, wisdom, a word that when we hear it sounds like a guru on a mountaintop uh, about to tell you something so profound. But the wisdom of this book is practical. Wisdom could be a way of translating wisdom would be just godly living, living in a way that honors your creator, living in a way that is with understanding that God made this world. And that your life is to be centered around Him. It's not secular. 
It's deeply religious. It's deeply God-centered and God-concerned. That's why the fear of the Lord is, is at the front of this book. And so it's not just life hacks or advice for how to make a profit or how to win friends and influence people. That advice is everywhere. The Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians, have far more Proverbs than the book of Proverbs contains. Other ancient cultures, the Chinese, are well known for their Proverbs. Uh, But those Proverbs are not divine. They're not centered around a covenant relationship with God. And so as you approach the book, there's necessary preparation. And that's the the mindset I want you to enter Proverbs chapter 3 with. You don't want to do anything when you're not adequately prepared. You don't want surgery without preparation, right? i got to put some iodine on you and scrub you up or whatever. Surgeon should wash his hands and do whatever else a surgeon needs to do. The coach. I watched a basketball team of, of middle school boys this week lose violently to another school. And it was clear that they were inadequately prepared. And so you want the coach to prepare the team to have a, a game plan going in. We're getting ready for Christmas and you're your roommates are, are stringing lights up in your janky apartment. And, uh, but back home, your mom is, is preparing things. She's uh, getting all the stuff out of the garage, the attic, and she's decking the halls with boughs of holly and whatnot. So there's preparation that goes into everything. And in Proverbs chapter 3, we're being prepared to understand why wisdom is so valuable what it will lead to, how it relates to God, and what are its consequences for the world around us. And the depth and practicality and beauty of wisdom, of godly living. Again, you can just substitute that word, wisdom, for godly living, for Godward living. And it involves not just something unseen and and spiritual, like how you feel about God or, or how... Uh, you may perceive things to be going, but it's the nitty-gritty of life that we see as God's concern, how you handle your finances and your friendships, what your marriage is like, the kind of person you'll choose to be married to. All of those practicalities are the stuff of godly living, and therefore they're the stuff of the book of Proverbs. So, with the spirit of preparation, let's dive into Proverbs chapter 3 and look at it together. I'll start by, I want to read you the whole thing, because again, I think the tendency towards isolation and removal of context is one of the ways people go wrong in the Proverbs, and I want this mind of preparation to be your agenda as we look at this chapter together. So I'll read it in whole, and then I'll break it down into four kind of simple parts to help us understand it. So Proverbs chapter 3, that the preparation for godly living would be your title. The preparation for godly living. Uh, verse 1, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God 
and man. Trust in Yahweh the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your roads straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor Yahweh with your wealth and from the first of all your crops. And then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent His rebuke because Yahweh disciplines those He loves as a father, the son He delights in. Verse 13, blessed is the, is the man who finds wisdom, the human being who finds wisdom. The, the, the human being, the, the Adam, the man who gains understanding. Verse 14, for the prophet she gives of her is better than profit of gold, and her revenue is better than gold. She's, verse 15, more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand, and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her byways are shalom. She's a tree of life to those who take hold of her. To those who hold her fast will be blessed. By wisdom, Yahweh laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, He set the heavens in place. By His knowledge, the watery depths were split open and the clouds drip their dew. Verse 21, My son, do not let them out of your sight. Speaking of wisdom and discernment. Guard sound judgment and discretion so that They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck, and then you'll go on your way in safety, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you fall asleep, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that will overtake the wicked, for Yahweh will be at your side, and He'll keep your foot from being snared. Verse 27, do not withhold good from those whom it is due. When you have the power to do, good. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. Do not plot harm against your neighbor. While he lives trustfully near you. Do not contend or accuse anyone for no reason when they've done you no harm. Verse 31, do not envy a violent person or choose any of his ways for Yahweh detests the devious but takes the upright into his confidence the curse of Yahweh is on the house of the wicked but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous and though he scoffs at the scoffers or mocks the mockers yet he gives grace and favor to the humble oppressed afflicted The wise inherit honor, but fools get only shame. This is the very word of the living God.
How is our God preparing us to live godly? Well, before he gives us the specific instructions for godly living, he shows us its its contours. He tells us why it matters so much. He whets our appetites. This is the this is the this is the taste before the meal. This is the appetizer before the proverbs. By the time we get to chapter 10, we are starving to hear what it is that will shape and inform and color the decisions and situations that fill our lives. But we have to go into it with a determination that we must live in a way that honors God. That's what godly wisdom is all about. What sets chapter 3 apart? You heard it, and I'm sure it sounded familiar to your ears with chapter 1 because there's certainly overlap there. What's missing in chapter 3, one thing that sets it apart is chapter 1 had that enticement of sinners trying to suck you in and join a gang and commit violent acts and find dishonest gain and go after uh, easy sex and everything else that the wicked are promising in the book of Proverbs. That was the enticement of sinners in chapter 1. Wisdom's warning you about those routes in the first two chapters. In the second chapter, the pursuit of wisdom is presented at the kitchen table between mother and father and their, their son, and they're trying to teach him the dangers of following after a wicked man or a foolish woman, instructing him and helping him, and even pleading and crying with him to do what's right and to follow after wisdom. But now in chapter 3, there's not as much negative. There's no voice of the wicked except the consequences that are due to them at the end. And instead, it's just this alluring presentation of what wisdom has for you. And though this isn't an easy chapter to chop up, uh, chapter 2 is is less easy because it's just one sentence. Chapter 3 is complicated in its structure, but I think, there's a, I think there's some cracks in it and a way to kind of look at it in parts. And what sets it apart more than anything else is its riveting focus on God. You'll notice the name of Yahweh has been used sparingly, verse 7 of chapter 1, uh, verse 29 of chapter 1, uh, just a few times, so one time in chapter 2. But when we get to chapter 3, we see the divine name of God, the covenant name of God, God's chosen name, God's revealed name, repeated over and over again. The Lord is to be trusted in verse 5. The Lord is the one that we fear to shun evil in verse 7 of chapter 3. The Lord is the one you honor above your wealth in verse 9. The Lord's discipline is what you don't despise or reject in verse 11. And the chapter continues to have this God-centeredness to it. Verse 19, by wisdom Yahweh laid the earth's foundations. In verse uh, 26, the Lord will be at your side and keep you secure from your foot being snared. And then it concludes the chapter with a focus on God as the one who watches over all of it. Yahweh detesting the, the devious and cursing the wicked, mocking the mockers, but honoring the righteous. And so, 
what we have here in Proverbs chapter 3 is this, this alluring, this beautiful, this, this portrait of godly wisdom or godly living and what it can bring. And so in order to prepare you to be a wise person, to live a godly life, it shows you and, and makes bold promises that we have to deal with. Because I bet you ran into something in that reading of chapter 3 that made you pause and say, that sounds like an overpromise to me. But I'm here to tell you that none of God's promises are indulgent. None of God's promises are inaccurate. None of God's promises are to be toned down. Because that's just how beautiful godliness really is. And so let's start verses 1 through 12. And this heading could be godly wisdom. Godly wisdom brings genuine godliness or genuine piety. However you want to say that. Godly wisdom brings genuine godliness. And what we have in these first 12 verses is a nice, clear setting. This piece of the poetry is crystal clear because it's driven by commands. And you can see the structure of these commands because the son is told to not do something in verse 1. Do not forget the teaching. Verse 3, let loyal love and truthfulness never leave you. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth. Verse 11, do not despise my son the Lord's discipline. Those are all commands. There's six of them, and they run through those 12 verses. They're interspersed with the reward that's attached to these things. Why should we not forget the Lord's teaching, the wisdom uh, that we've been instructed in? Well, verse 2, they'll add length of days and years of life and bring you shalom. Why should we have hesed and faithfulness never leave us? Well, you'll win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man, verse 4. Verse 5, we trust in the Lord with all our heart. Why? Well, the reason is in all your your ways, your roads, your paths, you would acknowledge Him and know Him. And therefore, He would make those paths, the course of your life, straight. The reason we're not to be wise in our own eyes or, or the result of not being wise in your own eyes is that there'll be healing to your body and nourishment to your bones. The reason we honor the Lord with our wealth is because then our barns will be filled to the overflowing and vats will brim over with new wine or grape juice if you prefer. Verse 11, do not despise my son the Lord's discipline. Well, what's the reward? Because the Lord disciplines us. He loves his his discipline, his affliction is proof of love and proof of sonship. And so this first 12 verses is so beautiful and so Godward and full of bold promises that at the very outset to those who are, who've been addressed so far, the peti, the Hebrew word meaning the open. And that's not a positive in the book of Hebrews. In our society, it's, it's awesome. It's the best to be open-minded, right? A big, fat, open mind. Just whatever you say, yeah, I agree with that. Somebody says the opposite, well, I agree with that too. Somebody says the opposite of that. Well, I agree with that too. I'm open-minded. That used to be called being stupid. But now it's called open-minded. In, in Hebrew culture, it's called the petit. Uh, another way to, to translate that, usually translated the simple, 
which isn't a word that works as good for us, is the non-committed. And so if the non-committed is approaching chapter 3, the non-committed, or even those who have just begun to, to dip their toes into the ocean of God's divine wisdom, they're being called all the more to pursue it because it's centered around who God is and what He promises to those who would follow Him. Look at these commands. We've looked at them twice, but let me just draw your attention to a few of the the connections here. Verse 1 says, My son, don't disregard my teaching. Don't forget my teaching. This is a reminder that, that wisdom isn't something that you were just set in the right direction when you were a kid. This isn't just a mentor or a coach that that helped you or a discipler when you were a teenager. There's a need for constant maintenance. There's a need for continual refreshment. Remember chapter 1 taught us that wisdom isn't uh, age limited. It's for the young and the old. It's for all the people. Everyone needs it. And so we're not to disregard the teaching. Not only that, but our hearts are to guard those commands. You're about to get six commands. You just got one, which is do not forget the teaching. But there's something beyond not just forgetting. There's a, an active guardianship. There's a sort of care to secure the borders of the wisdom that you've received. To keep bad guys away from it. To make sure no one can take it away. Not by neglect or forgetfulness. And not by anything else should the wisdom of God be able to be wrestled away from you. That's the portrait that is in front of us at the outset of chapter 3. And what will come of it? Well, it's a, it's a bold and, and even seemingly overstated promise. So you live in a godly way. What's the first thing that God says will happen to you? They will add length of days and years of life. Now that is something of great interest to modern man. Out in Westlake Village, there's a a fancy hotel that my little sister helped build. She was, she's a construction management person. And this hotel in Westlake Village has connected to it an institute for the longevity of life. You can go there if you have enough money. And I don't think they take insurance, just money. And you go in and they'll do all the things. They'll analyze all you. They'll scan you up. They'll take your blood. They'll check your teeth. They'll look at all of it, your diet, your habits, everything. All with the ultimate goal of extending your life. And they'll give you sound advice. Cut back on the cheeseburgers. Use your legs occasionally. You know, stuff I've been told this week. And people will shell over big cash to be told how to extend their life. And here, godly wisdom is telling you that a God word, a God centered, a life that is lived for Him and according to His parameters will actually extend your life. How do you think about that? I mean, we could all think of ways that that's true, right? The godly man is a moderate man, according to the book of Proverbs. He's not getting 
wasted. So there's a way that there's probably some lengthening of life if you're not crashing into telephone poles every Friday night, right? He's not sleeping around, and so we'd think, well, there's probably some security there because uh, monogamy has some some values. You're not going to get a weird disease and have all your parts fall off, that kind of a thing. And you think of other ways. Well, yeah, you, you don't run out of money. You don't live in abject poverty. You can eat food. You know, those are ways that keep you alive. But this blessing seems to have more than just the ordinary helpfulness of godliness as how it might extend your natural life. The promise is they will add length of days and years of life and bring you shalom. You know that word shalom? You got a Jewish friend or you've seen a Hanukkah card at Target? Shalom? It's a greeting word. It means hi. It's an aloha kind of greeting because it also means bye. But the meaning of it isn't just a greeting or a, or a dismissal. Instead, it has to do with total well-being. Soul, mind, body, spirit, shalom. The best way to translate it would be peace and prosperity. God is promising those who hang on to His teaching, to His Word, to His promises, to His ways of living, a long life and peace and prosperity. And I wonder if you believe that or you think it needs to be balanced out. Let's keep going. Let has said in faithfulness, well, I love and truthfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Those two things, loyal love and faithfulness or truthfulness, uh, has said and ehud uh, in Hebrew are words that mean, uh, they're words that have to do with who God is and how he acts. These are characteristics of, of God. Again, wisdom is not just secular skills for living, it's Godward living. And so, Loyal love, God's covenant loyalty, His faithful affection for His people, His unbreakable commitment to be their God and to love them and care for them, and God's ability to never break His word, to never let a single promise fail, including the promises that are so boldly stated in the book of Proverbs, even in this section, you're supposed to hang on to that loyal commitment love and hang on to that truthfulness of God that it might never leave you and it's even put in a in a way that is metaphorical right bind that around your neck tie that to your neck now hebrew conceptions of body are different than ours it's why the heart is the inmost person we when we say heart we mean affection love romantic that's what we mean by heart when the hebrews talked about heart they mean the whole person, the life direction, the volition, the will, more like we would say, you need to change your mind about that, or you need to make up your mind. Our word mind, we don't mean your brain matter, like the gray stuff, the mushy stuff that's in there that looks like whatever brains look like. But we're talking about where you're at with things. That's what heart means. Similarly, the neck has to do with your your direction, where you're set. If a person was stiff-necked, they were obstinate, right? That's a stiff-neck kind of a person. That works in English. That's how it works in Hebrew. They're supposed to take God's loyalty and take God's truth 
and make it the direction of your face and head and neck. Wrap it around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. There's that word, that that innermost directional and affectional and decisionistic part of you is supposed to be informed by who God is. And when that happens, what will be the result? You will win grace or favor and a good name or good judgment in the sight of God and man. Do you want the favor of God? Do you want the the approval of God? Do you want the approval of others? Well, then let your life be characterized, your direction be characterized by God's loyal love and God's unbreakable promises. Verse 5, the third command, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He'll make your paths straight. I've had that verse in my heart since I was a little kid. Only reinforced by my teenage years and mega church Christianity when sixpence none the richer sang in such a beautiful way. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. It's kind of an emo version. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. And then they mishmashed it with, don't worry about tomorrow. That's not here, that's from Matthew. So anyway, it's internalized for me. But it was never contextualized for me. What I mean by that is verse 5 doesn't live in isolation. To trust in Yahweh with all your heart is a command that goes right alongside of all its company. Don't forget the teaching. That's God's Word. Let has said in faithfulness never leave you. That's God's character. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, with your entire inner being. The foundation of a relationship with God is, is to take Him at His Word, to believe Him, to trust Him. It's another aspect of the fear of the Lord, the central theme of this book. And the contrast given is to lean not on your own understanding. I think when I heard that as a, as a young Christian, I thought it was kind of a mystical thing. Like, you just trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And you lean not on your own understanding. Like, it seems to minimize the mind. Potentially. Like, I, I don't want to use my understanding here. I want to just trust the Lord. Where has He taken me? And so in my young kind of Calvary Chapel ways, I just kind of was like, God will show me. I don't have to think about it. I'll trip on a wife. That's how I'll find her. It's biblical. So that's not what this verse is saying. Because we've learned from the Proverbs that understanding means the ability to discern between what's right and wrong. And so what this verse is telling you is you're going to have to know God, and you're going to have to know His Word, and you're going to have to learn to apply that Word, and study those Scriptures, and know this God, and that's what it means to trust Him with all your heart. The opposite is to just go with what you feel, and go with what you think, and go with what 
you think is right and wrong. That's what it means to lean or to rely or to press towards your own understanding, your own discernment. It means that you get to decide what's right. You get to decide what's wrong. You get to decide where your life should go. It's the exact opposite of trusting in the Lord's understanding, the Lord's discernment, the Lord's decision between what's right and wrong, and in all your ways. I didn't know the word ways when I was a kid learning that, learning that verse, but we know now that word ways is that most important proverbial word that stands for the course of your life. Translate it path, sidewalk. Translate it roads. In all your roads, know him. That word acknowledge, usually translated acknowledge, is the word for knowledge. It's to know. In other words, how do you know where you're at in your life? This isn't just about decision making. This is about who God is and what he wants for you. And God is telling you that the way that you need to go is a way that involves a true knowledge of God, an application of his word. Godly living is what it means to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Yes, it's based on faith and trust and reliance that God's word is true, that his way is right and righteous, but that's what it means to have your roads straight, yesar, uh, straight, smooth, that the path of your life will be leveled out in front of you because you won't go, I don't know what God's will is, because you've studied his word, you know his character, and he leads you to a straight and smooth path. I think you can tell we're not going to finish this sermon today, so I'm just going to keep cruising in these commandments with the the agenda that I I need to help you understand how God's promises are not too bold. But we're just going to keep on this one point of godly living here. So verse 7, what else does it mean to have godly wisdom that brings about genuine piety or genuine godliness? Well, look at 7, don't be wise in your own eyes. One commentator says, when does wisdom cease to be wisdom? Well, when you think you are wise. So the way to get off of this path is to think you've arrived at the destination. This is the teachability, humility, or coachability, whatever you want to call it, of the the kind of humble self-assessment that says, I've got a lot to learn. I've got a lot of growing to do. I don't have it all figured out. You see, if a person is wise in their own eyes, and the Proverbs will continually return to this theme, it's clear that they're not fearing the Lord and shunning evil. They're going to make themselves susceptible to every kind of wrong thinking because now they're leaning on their own understanding. Verse 8, let there be healing to your body. That's the Hebrew word for navel. Healing to your belly button. What does that mean? Well, your belly button is the middle of you. It was the cutest thing when you're young. Now, keep it away from me. <laughs> Navel. It's, it's you. It's the center of you. And what he's promising here is, is healing to the center of you and therefore the, the whole of you. It's like a bullseye. For some of us, our belly buttons are more bullseye than other. But it's a bullseye. It's the middle of you. And God's saying, look, if you're going to shun this arrogant mindset that thinks you've arrived, 
And instead, you're going to live in awe of God, in appropriate reverence and fear to the Lord, and you're going to shun what God shuns. You're going to hate what is evil. Then God is going to bring healing to your body and refreshment or nourishment to your bones. Dry bones in the Bible is a way of describing hopelessness and despair. Ezekiel 37 is one use. There's lots of other uses. But your bones, if you're living godly, are not going to be dry, hopeless, and despairing. Your bones will be nourished and refreshed. Your body healed. This might sound a little bit, I don't know, Benny Hinnish to your ears. You know what I mean by Benny Hinnish? It's that dude on TV, takes off his coat and whips you with it and heals your cancer. Whoa! My vape pen just fell out. It's not a vape pen, it's a fountain pen. Um, So, was that necessary to illustrate Benny Hinn? So Benny Hinn is, is a false teacher on TV. And he tells people, look, if you send me money, you'll get money. If you put your hand on the TV screen, literally put your hand on the TV screen, God will take away your ailments and your sicknesses. And he quotes verses like this. Proverbs 3.8, let there be healing to your body and nourishment to your bones. Are these promises too bold? Is the Proverbs offering you too much? Is godly living really going to pay you like that? Well, speaking of pay you, what about verse 9? Honor the Lord with your wealth. That's one translation. It could also be translated uh, more than. Honor the Lord more than your wealth. In other words, pay more attention to God than you do your money. But it would include honoring God with your money. That's why it says, with the first fruits of all your crops, the cream of the crop, the first offering, the best of what you have. In the Hebrew economy, they literally gave like a tax to the priests and to their king. And it was uh, part of the, the tax to the temple was to bring the first fruit of your crops. This is one of the stories that opens the Bible with, with the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and the offering of a good sacrifice and the offering of an unacceptable, unacceptable sacrifice. And it's a reminder at the very outset of the Bible and throughout the Old Testament that the Lord is to be honored with the best of what we have. And the promise that correlates in verse 10, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. I mean, there is an attendant blessing with handling your money well, right? That's why Dave Ramsey's rich. He's teaching you obvious stuff. Like, don't go into credit card debt because 27% interest hurts, right? It's obvious. He's also teaching you basic things like, hey, you should save some money so that when you get a flat tire, you can buy a new tire instead of just walk, right? It's like basic stuff. But this is more than basic stuff here. This is a promise that if you honor the Lord with your wealth, the first fruits of all your crops, we're talking about full barns or granaries could be the word there, and new wine brimming over your vat. 
This is a promise of material blessings. There's no other way around it. That's what the verse says. And so we keep going here because we're saying that godly wisdom brings genuine godliness and a Godward direction to your life, but it's attended by all these bold promises. And then a final one, don't despise my son the Lord's discipline and don't resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. This becomes a a point of the sermon in Hebrews, in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12. He directly lifts this and, and quotes it to remind his persecuted believers that the persecution evident in their lives, the hostility of the Roman government towards the early Christians that was often jailing them and even killing them was the sign of God's favor and was the show of God's love. God's corrective discipline, His rebuke, is not to be despised and resented, verse 11, because it's evidence of sonship and filial love. Another bold promise. A promise that seems to fly in the face of the thousands of Christians that were killed this month in Muslim countries around the world. If it's true that discipline, God's discipline, affliction, is the proof of sonship and love, that a a biblical view of your possessions that you honor the Lord more than your wealth will lead to material prosperity, verse 10. If it's true that a humility and a dependence on God's wisdom will bring physical health and healing to your body, verse 8. If a trust in the Lord will make the pathways, the roads, the, the life outcome straight and smooth in verse 6. If verse 4 is reminding us that we hold on to the attributes of God's love and God's faithfulness, then we will have a good name, a good reputation, and good judgment, favor with God and with man. And if we do not forget the teaching of our Father, and if we hang on to it and guard it, then the length of days and years of life will be full of peace and prosperity. How do you explain that to martyrs and to Christians who are poor and in the hospital and on hospice care? Is it that the book of Proverbs is being too optimistic? How does this fit with real life? How dare you bring this kind of talk to a suffering world is what you would say if you were thinking carefully. And there's different ways to resolve this problem. Balance. Well, you got to balance it out. Oftentimes... People won't crash their cars if they live in a Proverbs kind of a way. That doesn't totally help with tumors, does it? Well, oftentimes, you, know, you won't go to jail. You'll have a longer life if you're out of jail. You won't get the shiv. Eh. I don't think that's balance. I think that's blame shifting, maybe. 
Others will say, well, the Proverbs, it's an ideal world, you know, and this isn't an ideal world. This is a fallen world, but Proverbs was composed by a sinner in a fallen world, given to a fallen nation in the course of redemptive history. So that doesn't make sense. Liberal commentators say the sage is flawed, and he doesn't know how things actually are. Other scholars look at this, and they think of it in terms of probabilities, trying to undermine that these are promises, but they're, they're likely outcomes. And so, you know, it's, wor- it's worth it. It's likely. You, you still might die young and pretty, and your kids could go off the rails, and you could run out of money and be bankrupt. And, you know, but still, it's like pretty likely that you'll have a good outcome. How's that sound? Well, it sounds safer, but it doesn't sound at all like Proverbs chapter 3. You can also just put it in stone. That seems to be how so many applied the book of Proverbs. Rabbis even. I'll tell you this. Even modern Judaism puts the book of Proverbs and other writings of Solomon in the antilogemenon. Those which are spoken against. They're just kind of like, I don't know about this stuff. I mean, it's a valuable part of their tradition and teaching, but it's not authoritative. And that seems to be what we learned from Job's friends, right? Because they took, they took all this and said, Job, you're suffering. Therefore, you're ungodly. Because godly people never suffer, right? Godly people are blessed. They have long lives. Their kids don't die. But that doesn't line up with our experience. And so what do we do with Proverbs chapter 3? Well, we'll solve some of it next week. But I can't leave it right there. That's really mean. Because I think, I think it does bring some resolution as you move forward to see the benefits of wisdom. But this is something we have to solve now because we're going to encounter it over and over again in the Proverbs. And the answer isn't just balance it out or or maybe put a little eraser smudge on it and kind of take it at 50%. The answer is the Proverbs are to be read holistically. Holistically. That means in their entirety and as they relate to one another, and the rest of Scripture. Does that make sense? Holistically. The Proverbs are to be read holistically, or you're not reading them rightly. When you read them holistically, you won't end up like Eliphaz, who's turned it into a rigid system of prosperity gospel. You won't turn into a Benny Hinn or a false teacher on TV who's trying to steal from the poor and the sick and the weak. Because God will reject and disapprove that theology. But when you read the Proverbs holistically, what you find is that every one of these promises are given to us in such an unabashed way, in such a bold way, without 
qualification in so many times. These bold promises are to be taken at their word. And not only taken, they're to be treasured and they're to be held onto and guarded because of their immense value because they are more true, not less true than you realize. You see, God's promise of guarding that teaching will add length of days and years of life. And it doesn't mean that you're going to live to the ripe old age of 100. It means that God will guard your life for 100,000 years to come. You're not taking the promise bold enough. The shalom that God will bring to those who guard His teaching, who live godly, is a peace and prosperity that transcends and overcomes every single conflict this world has ever known and that your life will ever know. You will have such lasting peace and lasting prosperity if you follow after God's words and ways that any difficulty you encounter in your life will be seen as shalom from God's perspective and from yours someday. You will treasure, verse 3, the hesed and faithfulness of God and win favor and a good name that will last long after your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and your great-great grandchildren have forgotten your name because your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life and you will have a good name and a good reputation among the saints for all eternity. You will trust in the Lord with all your heart, verse 5, and He will make your path straight because there is only one path on which you will live and find the outcome to be life and peace with God and eternal life. It's a path that leads through the cross. And Jesus lived a perfectly godly life. And Jesus died at 33, but Jesus lives forever. And his path was straight and smooth from God's perspective because he went exactly where he was supposed to go. And we won't be wise in our own eyes, but our bodies will be healthy and healed and and refreshed because of the reality that God will by what He accomplished through the death and suffering of Jesus, make us eternally glorious and resurrected and we'll honor the Lord with our wealth and we will be abundantly wealthy. Not the Bentley and new sneakers kind of wealthy that we think of. What a stupid way to be wealthy. That lasts five seconds when it's compared to eternity. But instead, all the riches are yours in Christ Jesus the spiritual blessings and benefits that will come when you live in a town that is paved with pure gold and all your possessions are cast at the throne of God. You will not despise the taste of suffering and chastisement and discipline in this life because it will be proof of sonship and love, verse 11. God's wisdom brings genuine godliness, which brings a divine perspective that these blessings are not less than Solomon promises, but much, much more. He had every conception, and you'll see it as we go through Proverbs, that this life is not all there is. That godly wisdom has great benefit and value because godliness leads to eternal life. That's what's being offered to you. And it's contrasted over and over again with Sheol. 
with the grave. This Wednesday, I'm doing a funeral for a lady who I never met. And she became a Christian. She was a Jewish immigrant, her and her husband. During World War, their families came before, probably in the First World War. She changed her last name to hide her Jewishness. And her husband did the same, and they, they lived here in Los Angeles. They were secular. They went to nightclubs. They, they had a good time together until he got sent off to fight in World War II with the Air Force. And something happened in her and in him when he was away at war. She was worried he would never come back, and she had never learned to pray. And so she asked the Lord to protect him. And he came home safe when the war was over in 1945. But she never told anyone what Jesus had done for her until maybe a decade later when her husband started to read the Bible. They had a a heritage that was religious, but they didn't know God savingly until that day. They would both come to faith in Christ and lead lives of godliness and sacrifice and wisdom. Never had any kids. In fact, there'll only be a handful of us at her funeral on Wednesday. She lived to be 100 years old. But friends, that wasn't the fulfillment of Proverbs chapter 3 in her life. At least not fully. Because this dear woman is more alive now than she's ever been. And she's more rich now than she's ever been. And she's more blessed now than she's ever been. You see, her and her husband gave their lives to Christ. And they found Him as Messiah and Lord. And they sought to walk after Him. He died 25 years ago. She lived to be a whole hundred. But what's really happening is that godly living brings eternal felicity and joy. Nothing will ever overtake her. Nothing will ever harm her. Nothing will ever cause her any pain ever again. And in the vast span that is eternity with God, her Savior, any suffering or loss or sickness or death is overcome 10 million times over because of the reality of the unseen. Because wisdom isn't just getting good at life, it's getting good at God's life and life according to Him, which lasts forever and ever. So if you choose godliness, you're choosing eternal life. If you treasure His commandments, you'll treasure them forever. If you trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, in all your paths you'll know Him. He will make your path straight all the way, straight and smooth to be in His arms someday. Father, thank You for Your Word and Your truth. Help us to guard it, to hold on to it, to understand what it means to be truly blessed, to live with Your favor and with Your grace, to study Your Word and and learn who You are and how You'd have us respond to You, to know our to know our Savior and our Creator, the One who with wisdom made this world. Father, thank You for Your truth. Cause it to dig down deep in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.